How's everybody doing? God, I don't know why that always makes me smile. Um, okay, so before I get into chapter two of the book of Hebrews, um, I, I've been dealing with this uh, congestion, kind of like head cold thing for a while. I think I'm coming out of it finally. Um, but my wife and I are, are, we're very slow to take medicine, as I say that with my chloroseptic spray right here, but um, we're very slow to take medicine. And so my wife does all these like holistic, you know, like these, she makes me do all these crazy things when I get sick. And so one of the things she was talking about the other day, has anyone ever done the, the apple cider vinegar thing? Yeah. At the nine o'clock, some people were like, woo, and I'm like, you're insane. Uh, <laughs> So Alicia is telling me all the benefits of doing this apple cider vinegar. And so, you know, she busts out this big bottle. It looks like a, you know, 40 of uh, apple cider vinegar. And, and so she busts this thing out. If you're laughing at that, you've already condemned yourself. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pouring like a small glass of this apple cider vinegar, right? Because she's telling me all these health benefits and it'll clear you up and do all this stuff. And she's kind of like doing dishes or talking. She's like, yeah, and it does this and this. And as she's doing it, you know, I'm listening, I pour it and then I just shoot it, right? Like straight, uh, which is like the equivalent of swallowing a fiery sword. And um, just, just swallowed, yeah, swallowed this apple cider vinegar. And she turns around and she goes, and she's looking at me and I got so mad, I was holding the granite countertops in our kitchen and I was trying to rip them off the countertop. I was just angry at, at everything and vinegar, <laughs> vinegar and, and apple cider and everything. Uh, and so I'm holding it. And she says, I was just about to tell you how I mix it with honey and some juice and do this thing so it's not very painful when you drink it. And I was just like, all right. And, uh, but anyways, I'm doing better. Uh, I didn't say any bad words. I didn't throw anything. I didn't like, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't punt kick any dogs or anything. It was just, uh, I just, I just held the granite for a second and then let go and I was okay. Uh, Anyways, so um, we're also, uh, I got this chloroseptic spray. I think one dose is one spray. If you were sitting over here, I just did about eight of those. So if I, if I fall down, it's not the Holy Spirit. I probably need <laughs> medical attention. So um, we're going to dive into chapter two of Hebrews today. If you haven't been with us, we started this last week. This is going to be a really neat book of the Bible. It's in the New Testament, right before the book of James, if you're looking for it. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, it's okay. We got all the notes written down for you. It was given to you when you walked in, and I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter to you. Last week when we did chapter one, it was interesting. What Hebrews is doing, at least so far, is it's laying a, a foundation of Christian theology, what makes up Christianity or how we think of Jesus Christ, and just lays down some really fundamentals in the first couple of chapters. In last chapter, the fundamentals that the author wanted to talk about, we don't know who wrote it, we don't even know who it was written to. But the recipients of this letter, what they learned in chapter one is this, is that Jesus Christ is superior in all things. Superior to all things, superior in all things. Specifically, the author said that he's superior to the prophets of the Old Testament, all the authors of the Old Testament and the prophets. And he's also superior to the angels. A lot of people thought that Jesus was an angel and he's not an angel. He's far superior, he's far greater than the angels. Okay, so after saying that, chapter two's big theme is it says he's greater than all things, but he lowered himself even lower than humanity in order to save humanity and in order to help us in our times of temptation and our times of trouble. So the most superior thing that's ever existed subjected himself 
to be lower than even humans. And he did that in order to help us, to save us, to be there for us, to understand us. He did all these things. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Very basic things that God came down to earth, lived his humanity, died for us in order to save us, okay? The most simple uh, uh, part of our theology, if you will, the most basic, the most important part, okay? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, I'm going to pray, pray for you guys. You guys are more than welcome to pray for me that I don't hack, you know, hack up a lung in the middle of the sermon or, or uh, you know, pass out from chloroseptic overdose or whatever the case may be. You're welcome to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you, and I think you guys will enjoy chapter two, okay? Everyone good? Good. Okay. All right. Let me pray, and, um, and we'll jump into it, okay? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I just want to tell you I thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, uh, that I get to speak your word, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for everyone that came out this morning to hear your word, God. I pray that they're blessed by it. I pray, God, that I can teach it with accuracy, that I can teach it with passion, that I can teach it in such a way that honors you, God. Uh, Lord, we pray for every uh, Christian, every believer, every church in our city. We pray, God, that your kingdom is advanced through the churches, advanced through the people who go to those churches, Lord. God, we also pray for the non-believers, the skeptics, the atheists, agnostics, people who maybe follow religions other than Christianity, God. We pray, God, that you reveal yourself to them. We pray, God, that we can be a good example of you to them so they can see the love of the Father through us, God. Lord, we love you, Jesus, and we lift you up and we praise you, God. All of this is for your son's glory and for your honor, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter two, the book of Hebrews. I'm going to do my best not to botch this or cough too much, and uh, we'll see what happens. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have learned so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through the angels was legally binding in every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those that heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Okay, so what essentially what was happening with the recipients of this letter is the writer was getting nervous, was getting scared and was horrified at the idea that some of them were turning away, drifting away, as he says it, from the faith. And so they were turning their back on, on what they had heard. And that could be either because of persecution, that, be, that could be because there was other religions that were more alluring to them. Maybe in this religion, you know, part of the, the worship practice was, you know, promiscuous sex and that was attractive to people. And so they would be allured by false religions and false doctrines. And so whatever the case was, this horrified the author. And so what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was reminding the readers was that there's a lot at stake here. Our spiritual life, our spiritual eternity is at stake here. So we need to pay attention to what we've heard. We're going to go back to that idea again at the end. And so he reminds them of this. He says, the, the, the author said, okay, in the Old Testament, angels were sent by God to deliver the message of God to the authors of the Old Testament and to the prophets of the Old Testament. And in those days, if you broke the law that God had sent down, the Ten Commandments, if you broke this law, it was punishable by death. Now, as a non-believer or a skeptic or even us in the room, if you're a Christian, we step back and we say, that's a little harsh. 
that you're going to kill us if we don't follow the laws of God? Well, in the New Testament, the stakes are even taken up a notch. After the revelation of Jesus Christ, negligence towards God's carry, God carries an even higher price that we will lose our eternal soul if we don't honor the principles of God. We don't die a physical death here on earth. Well, actually, all sin eventually does lead to death, but we will suffer an even greater consequence. Our spirit, our soul is in jeopardy if we neglect the Word of God. And so the author didn't hear the Word of God directly from Jesus. Jesus came down to earth, delivered it to His disciples. Then those disciples made more disciples. And the author of Hebrews was one of that second generation group of disciples. And the point again was this, though. He knew people were stumbling in their faith, and so the author of this book of the Bible wanted to remind people, listen, listen, if you, in case you forgot, God came to earth, lived as one of us, died for us, and poured out His Spirit. Sometimes even you and I need to be reminded of that. That's why we take communion. We need to be reminded that Jesus came from heaven to live as humanity, to offer us salvation. And if we understand that, it's ludicrous to reject or to neglect such a salvation as that. Not only did Jesus fulfill at least 44 blatant uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, there's hundreds of ambiguous ones, but there's about 44 that are just really, really inarguable. Not only did He fulfill those prophecies of the Old Testament, but He gave us signs. He gave us miracles to verify the message. Now, a lot of people say that signs and miracles don't happen anymore. And I would say that that's not a problem with God's frequencies, but it is in fact a problem with our antennas. That we're not the ones, we're not, we're not either, either we have a problem with our reception to see the miraculous things of God. We have so many distractions around us. We have lackluster prayer lives. We have extremely paper thin and fragile faith. It's no wonder why we don't see the great things of God. We're not in tune to that. We haven't primed ourselves for that. We're not even seeking those things anymore. And so it's not a problem with God. It's a problem with the receiver. It's a problem with us. So not only did God come down to earth in Jesus Christ, not only did He do signs and miracles, He also poured out His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God was poured out. When you read Acts chapter 2, we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for the first time. The prophet Joel talked about this. And so after the Holy Spirit was poured out about 50 days, about two months or so, after Jesus Christ had resurrected, we see that now His people were empowered. And there was these visible, audible signs. And there was these, these character things that were developed in people that was miraculous. And it showed even further the superiority of the Christian gospel. But again, unfortunately, like the miracles and signs we talked about earlier, Unfortunately, we don't want to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We don't want to talk about prophecy and miracles and healings and tongues and interpretation and the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom and the gift of courageous faith. We don't like to talk about those things because A, either people have abused those. We've seen abuse of that, correct? I've seen abuse of it. So we get afraid of the supernatural things of God or we're just scared of it. We just neglect it and we say, well, yeah, you know, some people do those things, but we don't do those things. You know, I know that the Bible talks about those things, and it talks about those things because those things are beneficial for the body. They're beneficial for the church. The gifts of the Spirit were given to us to edify each other, to edify the church, and to bring glory to God. Therefore, we should not neglect those things of God. They were given to us for a reason, okay? So this next part, 
is going to talk about how Jesus is at the center of everything, okay? Not us, but Jesus. Next part. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about, but one has somewhere testified. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it were, or as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in his death. So the recipients of this letter were asking themselves, okay, so you said that he's greater than humans and greater than angels. It talks about that in chapter one. It proves that he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the, in the angels. But the people who received this letter knew that Jesus died, not just died a man's death, a criminal's death. So you say he's greater than everyone, but, but he, was, he was murdered. And he was murdered in a very humiliating way. And so what the author is saying is, look, Jesus is in control of the world to come. That might mean the time after he died. That might mean uh, uh, the future, the afterlife. It, it, we don't know. It doesn't matter. But we know that Jesus is going to have everything subjected to him. Now, the start of that happened after the crucifixion. When Jesus died and rose again from the cross, he basically hit the button that's going to start the end of time. The crucifixion began the last phase of human history. Now, that hasn't come to a completion yet. We're still here. It will come to a completion when he comes back for his church. But in, what we do know is not everything is yet subjected to Jesus, but he made himself lower than the angels for a short period of time. And he did that. <coughs> he did that so he could come to earth and set things straight. Whenever people reject the Old Testament, that's foolish because you don't know why God came to earth. He did that to set everything that had been made wrong by us and by the devil. So there's this example in Psalm 8, 4 through 6 that he quotes here. And the author was trying to make two points. One is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the prophets talked about. So if you have your Bible, you don't have to do this, but all this stuff in the Old Testament, all this stuff was a buildup of Jesus. It was a buildup. It was, it was building up to the crescendo, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And that's extremely important. So he's the pinnacle. He is superior. He is supreme. And the flip side of that, the other thing that the psalmist wanted to say is, we're not. Humanity is insignificant compared to God. Of course, God looks at us with adoration and love. We're his masterpiece. We're his children. But the world does not revolve around us. The universe does not revolve around humanity. That's why humanism is such an arrogant religious form, because we're not the center of everything. We're not our own God. There's not goodness in us. It is all because of the Holy Spirit, and it's all because of the Son of Man that came down to redeem us. So that term, the Son of Man, Jesus came up with this term. He talks about this in the book of John. The Son of Man is essentially the perfect human. And the only way you can have the perfect human is there must be the divine mixed in with that. 
There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a perfect human. There never has been, there never will be, except for Jesus Christ. But the only way that that was made possible is Jesus was completely human and he was also completely divine. And so Jesus came down to take the sin, the shame, the humiliation of mankind. But in order to do this, he had to suffer. He had to pay a price because all the things that we lost, the innocence we lost, the fact that death was entered in, so our life was lost. All these things were lost. Jesus came back to regain those things. Humanity brought sin into the world. And all the things that were lost, Jesus will regain because of his obedience to God and because of what he did on the cross. Now again, the completion of this has not happened yet. Everything has not been subjected under Jesus yet, but it's inevitable. It is going to happen. We know that because the Bible says so. So this portion that I just read, verse nine, it finishes up with three very simple, but three very profound statements that are essential for the Christian faith. The first one is this, Jesus made himself lower than his own creation, the angels. And as a man, he experienced suffering and death. Think of it in our terms. This is not a great example. It's the best I could come up with. So Steve Jobs created Apple computers, right? I know he passed away, but let's pretend he's still alive created what is the most powerful organization that has ever existed, the most powerful corporation, most powerful business that's ever existed since mankind has done such a thing. He creates it. He sees that it's not exactly going the way he wants to go. So he lowers himself to janitor. He becomes the janitor so he can start from the very ground level and build back his company the way he wants to, exactly how he saw it originally. That's essentially what Jesus Christ did with humanity made himself as low as he could to start at the ground level, literally washed the feet of his own creations, and he's going to build it all back from the ground up. And part of that was as a man, he experienced suffering and death. God permitted this, and Jesus volunteered. He offered this, and he tasted death, not because it benefited God, it benefited us. And the outcome of that is that Jesus Christ will be glorified and honored forever. We will see him in his glory, in his majesty, in his honor for what he did. We will see that for all time, okay? Last part. Now, in this last part, guys, there is so much crammed into just a couple of short verses. I'll do my best. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Now listen, I want you to pay attention. I'm going to read that uh, verse 15 one more time. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That is not God's intention for you to fear death. For it is clear that He does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, He had to be like His brothers in every way, so that He could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tested and has suffered, He is able to help those who are tested. There is so much crammed into that. Let me do my best to unpack that. The first is this. It was extremely difficult for the recipients of this letter to understand why God would have His own son tortured and violently murdered. It's hard for me to understand as well. But here's the point. Whatever God does is perfect and right. Whatever God does is fitting, regardless of my comprehension and regardless of yours. Whatever He does is fitting, and Jesus' death was no exception to that. Because of Jesus' death, because the blood that was shed, many sons get to come to glory. What that means is it wasn't for the cross, we wouldn't have the gateway opened for all of us to receive salvation. Now, in the New Testament, when it says brothers and sons, it's not just talking about guys. So whenever I say to a group like this, hey guys, I'm talking to the men and women. It's just the way we say things. When they say brothers and sons in the New Testament, it's both men and women. It's including all people into the adoption of God's family. Now, when we're adopted into God's family, listen, this is huge. We become reconciled to the Creator, the Creator God the one that spoke everything into existence. We become reconciled with him because of the death of Jesus. We not only have the opportunity to be adopted into the family, we can have a relationship with the creator God and we can experience, we can feel God. Now, some people get a little hokey when they talk about the glory of God. This isn't God's aesthetic beauty. This is what emanates off of God. This is the perfume, if you will. This is the smoke from the fire, if you will. In this present form, we can't see God in His entirety. We just wouldn't live through it. He's too majestic. He's too powerful. He's too awe-inspiring. One day we will get to see that, but not now. We'll have a glorified, perfect body where we can handle that. But now we get to feel the glory of God. We get to commune with God. We get to speak with God. We get to feel God. We get to be convicted and constructed and, 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 and corrected by God. We get to experience that. And so here we get into some weird stuff. It says that the perfect God had to be made perfect. Now that's confusing. Through death, though, Jesus, the source of salvation, became perfect. Now Jesus has always been perfect. He is God. He's part of the Holy Trinity. and He's one that spoke all things into existence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's always been perfect. But when he died on the cross, he became the perfect savior. He became the perfect payment. He became the only one that could step in and take care of our just enormous tab of sin. He became perfect in the fact that he learned sympathy. Now look, if you're a theologian in here, I know that God knows everything. I know you can't teach God anything. But what I mean by he learned sympathy is that through his experience of becoming human, now he understands, and, and even I'm uncomfortable saying that, but he knows what it's like to be one of us. 
God had never suffered death. He had never suffered pain and agony, but through Christ he did. Now here's what's beautiful about that. So when we approach Jesus and we say, God, you don't know what it feels like to go through this. Yes, he does. When he asks us to do something, if he asks you and I to give our life, he has already done that. If he asks us to sell all of our possessions, he's already given up everything. He became the lowest of the low. And so what it's so beautiful about our creator, about our God, that he would never ask anything out of us that he hasn't already done. He's done it all. He's done it all. He became the perfect savior. Not only that, we go deeper. He starts to sanctify us. He starts to set us aside for God's purpose. He starts to refine us. What essentially happens is when you become a believer and the Holy Spirit infills you, though we'll never be perfect this side of heaven, we grow closer and closer and closer to acting like God, to thinking like God, to living like God, because we have this close connection with Him now that's made possible. And when we have the Holy Spirit, we become one with God. Listen, the same substance that makes up the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the same substance that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, the same substance that spoke the universe into existence is the same substance that now lives in us when we accept Him. Isn't that amazing? We become one with the Creator. We become one with God. We become one with Christ. And we get to become brothers with Christ. Now this is even, again, it just gets more and more deep it's quoting Psalm 22, 22, where it's talking about the triumph of the cross. And it also talks about the agony of the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, when he said, God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting the Old Testament. Again, when people say the Old Testament's irrelevant, obviously Jesus thought it was pretty relevant. And it shows his suffering. And that through Jesus' suffering, we get to become brothers with him. Now we've got to be careful with that. There are some cults, like, like the Mormon cult, and I'm not trying to be mean, but it's a cult. Whenever you add on a whole new New Testament, that justifies a cult. And one of the things they say is that we are brothers with Jesus, that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, and that we will one day be elevated to be brothers with him in a literal sense. We're never brothers with Jesus in a literal sense. We are always subordinates to Jesus. He's always way up there, and we're always way down here. But that's what makes this even more impressive that he's so far above us, but he would lower himself to look us in the eyes and say, friend, brother, brother, friend, that he would treat us on that level. That makes it even more amazing. Not just brothers, deeper, but also children of God. Verse 13 is quoting Isaiah chapter 8, showing the attitude of Jesus to be obedient to the Father. And also quoting Isaiah. Isaiah said that having children was the greatest miracle ever. That was his recognition. And I'm not trying to be offensive, but that's why the topic of, 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 of pro-life is so important. That's why it's so important that Christians are engaged in that and that we very in a loving way speak to women who have unwanted pregnancies and, because that is the greatest miracle that we ever get to be involved in. And so the neglect of our children is extremely offensive to God. And so when Isaiah said that, man, the most miraculous thing is to have children, and then compares it to the fact that God calls us his kids, the greatest masterpiece, the, the greatest miracle, if you will, that God sees is us. It's us. And we get to be children of God. Now again, even deeper. Not only good to be brothers and children that we have a commonality now with Christ, 
that Jesus took on flesh and blood and therefore shared a commonality with us. And people have argued this. Was Jesus fully human? Was he fully divine or just a spirit? What he was is what we call the God-man. That he was, yes, 100% humanity. He was also 100% God. Now, does that make sense in our, in, in our mathematical equations on earth? It doesn't. But if it made sense, he wouldn't be God. And the fact that he was 100% human and 100% God, he had to be both or he could not fulfill our needs. If he was just God, he could save us, but he couldn't sympathize with us. But since he's also 100% human, he knows exactly what it feels like to be in our shoes. He knows exactly what it feels like to be made fun of or humiliated or physically hurt. He knows what it feels like to have your brothers or your sisters turn their back on you. He knows what that feels like. So he's absolutely perfect. And the fact that he was man and God simultaneously. Another reason why he had to die is he has to take out one of his enemies. Not only did he die for fallen humanity, but he died to destroy the one that has the power of death, which is the devil. Death was entered in to, to, to humanity because of sin. And our sin, not Jesus' sin, caused Jesus to have to die. And his death swept away our sin and guilt. And the heavy price that no amount of sacrificing could pay for, the ultimate sacrifice came down and took care of that debt. And Jesus triumphed over Satan on the cross. He has already won the victory. If you go back, if you flat, uh, fast forward a little bit into the book of Revelation, we all know how it's going to end. But we haven't seen the full effects of that yet. We haven't seen the full effects of Jesus' death and his resurrection. We know that because Satan is still walking around like a roaring lion. We know that he's still looking to tear people apart. We know that Satan still has limited power. But we also know that Satan's fate is inevitable. We know it is certain. We know in Revelation 20.10 that he will be cast into a great lake of fire where he will never mess with us again. We know that that is going to take place. So since we know that's gonna take place, how in the world can the devil have the power of death? The reason why, and most of you know the story, if you don't, it's in Genesis chapter two and three, that, that Satan came into the garden, he tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God. It was a minor rebellion, but it was rebellion nonetheless. And sin was brought in and therefore death was brought in because of sin. And that is the trophy that Satan walks around with. Woohoo! he walks around with that. Now you, now you humans die because I tricked you. And that's the power that he has. And though death is not destroyed yet, listen, the fear of death has already been destroyed. One day death will be defeated as well. But right now in the interim, it says that God came to deliver those who live their lives in fear of death. We are not to be afraid of death. It says this in 1 Corinthians, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. I've done more funerals than I've ever wanted to do. I've done them for children. I've done them for high school girls. I've done them for people who've lived in their 90s. And when I do funerals, I don't get exceptionally sad at funerals. I know that sounds insensitive. It's because if the individual that I'm doing the funeral for was a believer in Jesus, gave their life to Jesus, I don't mourn for them. 
I might mourn for some of, some of their family. I might even mourn for myself because I miss them, but I don't mourn for them. They have graduated into something much better than this life. Death has no sting. It has no victory over them. I've done one funeral for a man that was not a believer, and that was one of the most difficult things I ever did. It was very, very difficult. And for that funeral, I remember mourning. I remember crying. I remember being deeply distraught by that death because that person was an avid non-believer. But death has no sting. Death has no power over us. I know that we worry about what's going to happen to our wife or our kids or whatever the case may be. But when it comes to us, no one can take your soul. God is the only one that has power over that. So he was not an angel. Jesus was not an angel. This was hard for people to understand. He was, in fact, a human. He didn't even come to reach out to angels. He came to reach out to Abraham's offspring. Essentially, all people who believe in the true God are offspring of Abraham. The Jews, of course, and then we as Christians are grafted into that tree. And so Jesus came down to our level. I can't say that enough. He came down to our level, and he still comes down to our level via the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And he goes to extreme lengths to get our attention and to be intimate with us. And so he became humanity so he could be close to us, so he could, he could be like brothers, that he could sympathize with us, and that he could be obedient to God the Father. Secondly, he had to become human to pay for our sins. Jesus did in totality what all the rituals and religion of the Old Testament could only do in partiality. All the rituals where they had to kill these animals and spill their blood and eat parts and burn parts and discard parts and it had to look like this and all these different things they had to do, that just rolled back sin for a short amount of time. Jesus came and said, I'm just going to take care of the whole bill. I'm just going to take care of the whole thing. And he did in full what those things could only do in part. And he did that because he loves us. And he did that. And now <coughs> he's able to help us. Here's what's amazing. Jesus understands our temptations. Whenever we look up to God, not just if he asks us to suffer for him, but when we're, we're tempted, he's already been through that. If you go back and read the gospels, he was tempted with power. He was tempted with money. He was tempted with kingdoms. You got to think as, 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 as charismatic as and how influential he was. I'm sure women threw themselves at Jesus. He was tempted with all these different things. But he never caved into those temptations. He was perfect. And he suffered physically. He suffered uh, emotionally. He suffered even spiritually. He was so stressed out that he was, bleeding, uh, he was bleeding out of the pores of his face in the garden. He was so stressed out that he said, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. So this suffering became a temptation for him to end his mission. But he endured he went through that temptation. He made it through this. And because of that, we can be saved. Not just, not just saved, but he can be there for us in our times of temptation. That we can run to him and say, God, I'm struggling. And he goes, I get it. I get it. Let me help you with that. Like my father helped me. Let me help you with that temptation. So if I had to sum up chapter two, and I hope I paint a clear picture of this. If I had to sum up chapter two, it would be simply this. Not only is Jesus superior to the prophets and angels, 
Jesus lowered himself so he could have community with us. Now, let me tell you this before I start showing you the rest of the slide. The Holy Trinity of God, the Godhead, he doesn't need us. The Father, Son, and Spirit have perfect community within themselves. He doesn't need to talk to us, but he wants to. And he lowered himself to such a level to where God literally looked man in the eyes. He willingly made himself humanity's servant. He literally washed the feet of his own creation. He came down and he said in the book of John, he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. I came to forgive you. I came to restore you. I came to protect you. Anyone who's willing to get behind me, I will guard you. I will save you. That's what he did. Now, if I'm going to say such an audacious thing to you, if you're in here and you're not a believer or you're a skeptic, or maybe you're in here and you're a believer and you've just forgot, if I say something so audacious to you that the God that created the universe humbled himself and came down, lived and died, rose again, poured out the same substance that he's made of to fill us. If I made such an audacious claim, at the very least, wouldn't you look into it? At the very least, if I told you there was a billion dollars strapped onto the bottom of your chair, there's not, don't bother. (laughs) But if I told you that, wouldn't you at least look? How crazy, how illogical to not even look into the possibility that we would have the opportunity, listen, to commune with God. So this is the Veil Nebula. The Veil Nebula is 1,470 light years away from planet Earth. This picture has not been photoshopped. It hasn't been color corrected. It hasn't gone through Lightroom or any. It's untouched. The Hubble telescope took this picture, right? It's on NASA's website. So the Veil Nebula, 1,470 light years away. Do you guys know how far, uh, how far light travels in a year? Six trillion miles. It's a long ways. So this picture that we see right here, is exactly 6 trillion times 1,470, somewhere in the quadrillions, miles away from planet Earth. This picture is an image of a star that died 8,000 years ago. 8,000 years ago, this star died, and the remnants of a dead star look like that. Now, I'll show you this for a couple of reasons. One, if you don't think God's into art, look at that. God's a wonderful artist, beautiful, completely untouched, this picture, not enhanced in any way. That's gorgeous. Look what he does. The other reason why I wanted to show you this is it's literally quadrillions of miles away, somewhere deep, deep in space, and we've captured this image. Do you see how big God is? We can see nebulas that are 250 million light years away. This one's only 1,470 Do you see the expanse of space? Do you see the magnitude of the God that spoke it into existence? Now look, the God of the Veil Nebula would love to have coffee with you. Let it soak in. Christians, Christians, 
Have we grown so comfortable in our mundane lives that we have forgotten that the God of the Veil Nebula wants us to just slow down and give Him some attention? But work is so important. The God that spoke this into existence is just wanting a little bit of your time. That should humble us to such a place. That should bring us down to a level. That should make us put our, 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 just our meager existence into perspective that the God that did this would come down and wash His creation's feet. That He would come down. That He would live that He would die, that He would rise again, that He would pour out His Spirit so we can be recipients of the same substance that made this. So we can be recipients of the same God that created the universe and He has come down to us and He's just saying, would you follow me? How audacious of a claim that I am making, but would you just look into it? Would you just study it a little bit? Would you just entertain the notion that God came to earth? If you're a non-believer in here, all I ask of you is this. When we take communion here in a second, just to be vulnerable enough to say, God, if you're real, just let you, I, I want to feel your spirit. I just want to know I just want to feel it a little bit. Christians in here, I love you. But what have we done that we don't get more excited about this relationship that we're offered? What have we done that we glory or we put more glory and honor and money into buildings and we care more about our personal time or we care more about how far we work up the corporate ladder or what kind of car we drive, that we've been more consumed with those things than the opportunity to speak to this God. What has happened to us? What has happened to us? Have we grown so cold? Have we grown so apathetic? that we no longer feel God, that we're no longer convicted by His Spirit, that we're no longer inspired to dream, that we're no longer inspired to grow closer to our Creator, to understand why we're here. What has happened to us? That it takes coercing and giving away iPads at Easter and jugglers on stage and light shows and frivolity and foolishness to get us to want to speak to God. What has happened? You have the opportunity, and I know some of you are busy, and I know some of you, some of you want to beat the crowds, I know some of you have things to do, but we have the opportunity when we take communion that represents the God that came to earth that lived and died for us. We have the opportunity to remember what he did for us. We have the opportunity to talk and commune with the God of the Veil Nebula. It's right here today. What will you do? What will you do? Everyone is welcome to take this communion. The only thing you have to do is you have to ask, ask God to forgive you of your sins.
If you're not a Christian, Josh and some other people will be up here to pray with you. They can answer questions for you. They can pray for you. And if you don't want to partake in this, it's fine. You may have good reasons to, to not do this today, and, and that's totally fine. Please be respectful of those who want to commune with God. Please. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? My prayer right now, and I mean it with all genuineness, is that everyone in this room feels the holy power of God. I pray that you feel His Holy Spirit tug on your heart. I'm not trying to play on your emotions. I'm not trying to coerce you. I genuinely hope that you feel the Lord. And if not now, I pray that you will just remain open and vulnerable and transparent. And when God sees fit, He will touch your heart. Lord Jesus, for everyone who can hear my voice right now, Father, I pray blessings over them. I pray, God, that they take some time to commune with you, that they take some time to be still and just to know who you are, to know how large you are, but how you humbled yourself for us. God, I love you. I thank you and I praise you, Jesus. God, Lord, let us never grow apathetic. Lord, let us never become mundane in our faith. Lord, let us never not be awestruck. We love you. We praise you. We lift you up. It's in your son's name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. Thank you.